Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, ninety-six percent replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a thirty-night guarantee. Plus, get fifteen percent off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code Buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Did you know that the human body contains more bacterial cells than human cells? Today, we're talking about the microbiome. And so that's made up of microbes, whether that be bacteria, fungi, viruses that live on and inside uh, the human body. And they play a crucial role in our health. They help us to digest our food, to make vitamins and minerals, to boost our immune system, and it can even affect our mood. And it's unique to every person and can be influenced by a range of different things, including the diet, the environment, and the lifestyle. And there's a massive interest in this space in osteoarthritis. And at least part of that has been led and sparked by our guest today and fascinating insights that he and others have provided about changes in the microbiome that may be making an important contribution to osteoarthritis. And one thing that you know, I think we we underrecognize is the massive role that uh, systemic inflammation plays in the development of osteoarthritis and its ongoing progression, and where does that come from? And so, one of the key theories here is that that could be coming from the microbiome. So we'll get into that today in what is a fascinating, complex, and developing field, and we're really, really fortunate to have today on joint action, Dr. Matlock Jeffries. Matlock is a rheumatologist and associate professor of medicine at the Oklahoma Medical Research Foundation. And his research interests include the microbiome in osteoarthritis. And his research lab was the first to identify a microbiome within human and mouse cartilage, which changes as patients develop osteoarthritis. Hello, Matlock, and welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on, David. I really appreciate it. No, it's uh, it's great to have you here. It's a topic of uh, great interest to me, and I think it'll be of great interest to our audience as well. But before we get into the main content, primarily in an effort to get to know you a little bit better, I know we've bumped into each other a few times at meetings, but uh, I couldn't say I really honestly know you very well. Can you share with the listeners a little bit more about your background and what a typical day looks like? Sure, I'd be happy to. So 
as uh, many of the guests you've had on your podcast, I'm a physician scientist. So I have sort of two roles. One's in the clinic. I'm a rheumatologist. So I see rheumatology patients in clinic and I do a fair bit of teaching of rheumatology fellows and internal medicine trainees and such, mainly focusing on rheumatology and of course, try to uh, focus on osteoarthritis too as much as I can. And then the other part of my job is doing research. So I run a research laboratory at my home institution where we focus of course on, on osteoarthritis. And my day, it, you know, as, as so many of the other physician scientists that you've had on the podcast will tell you, my day really varies a lot. So some days I'm in uh, teaching the fellows in their clinics at the VA or at the university. Sometimes I'm in my own private clinic. And then every now and then I get time to really sit down in front of my computer and do some data analysis and mainly focus on my research and grant writing and such. And, you know, I obviously tease this question out a, a little bit and you've listened to this before, but of those activities, which do you find most fulfilling or, or is it the mix that you enjoy? It really is the mix. You know, I, I try to lure young physicians that are interested in research into this field by telling them that uh, it's it's a very unique sort of job, right? So just about the time that you get sort of tired and exhausted from a busy clinic, then it's time to go back into the research realm. And just when you read that uh, perhaps not stellar grant review from study section, it's time to go to clinic and see patients that you can make a make a big difference in their life. So I really do I do like the mix. Yeah, yeah, no, I think it's the balance that makes uh, so so day every difference, but also so fulfilling. And Matlock, when you're not at work, what what do you enjoy doing outside of work? Well, a number of things. These days, it's uh, taking care of a toddler. So we have our first son. He's 19 months old this weekend, actually. So congratulations. Thank you. The vast majority of my time is spent running around trying to keep up with him, which is surprisingly difficult. Never thought it would be that hard. But other than that, I enjoy a lot of things. I, I enjoy using my hands. So I actually do a lot of construction work around the house and at uh, relatives' houses and such. I'm actually in the middle of helping build a house for my mom right now. And then, of course, I enjoy reading and I used to enjoy travel in the pre-COVID era. We're trying to get back to that, of course. Wonderful. And uh, has the construction piece always been an interest? Yeah, it always has ever since I was a kid. You know, I... I have a little bit of a unique background. I grew up on a cattle ranch in the middle of nowhere, Oklahoma. So from a very young age, I was um, sort of required to be outside using my hands, building stuff and helping around the ranch and things like that. So I've always been doing it. Wonderful. Uh, and again, I'm getting diverted here, but what sort of cattle? So we raised a mixture, mainly black Angus, some red Angus. Um, we had a little bit of, of intermixing of Brahmin and some others to increase resilience to weather and such. So this will be of absolutely no interest to our audience, but I grew up in a dairy <laughs> farm, which is now yeah. a beef, beef farm. And that's predominantly either a limousine or, or black Angus. Because I think that's, at least from the viewpoint of most of the people who are buying beef, I think that's the sort of meat that they actually want to be buying. Yeah, I agree. When I was a young kid, we introduced some limousine into our herds. And I remember, I, I don't even know how, it must have been four or five uh, when we got a big new limousine bull and it was huge and impressive. That's all I remember from my vague childhood memory. But Yeah, they are built, that's for sure. Yeah. Matt, look, if you had to describe yourself in five words, what would they be? 
Well, I had to help uh, ask for a little bit of help with this, but I think it would be um, resilient, dedicated, uh, practical, unique, and adaptable. And who did you ask for help? If I can so ask, I, I asked my husband for help with one of these, and he's the one that gave me dedicated. So, uh, oh, very cool, very cool. Oh, well, they're all wonderful qualities, and I'm sure have stood very well through all of the work that you've done. Now, really wanting to get to the content of what we've got focused on today, and that's obviously around the role of the gut microbiome in in osteoarthritis, but. I guess just to get into some of the technicality, can you just tell me in the first instance, what is the microbiome? Sure. So it's it's a term that is actually slightly nebulous, but when most people use the word microbiome, what they mean is basically everything that is non-human and living inside of you. Although some people would argue that viruses are not living, right? So um, when we use the, the term microbiome and we don't modify it, generally what most people are talking about are bacteria. Although we have to recognize there are many things beyond bacteria that are also inside of us, including fungi and viruses, et cetera. So, you know, there are uh, roughly 38 trillion bacteria that are living in a given human being, and that's compared to about 30 trillion human cells. So there's uh, about a quarter more bacterial cells than human cells. And unfortunately, we don't know how many uh, viruses and fungi are necessarily in us at a given time. And in general, when they describe that term, it's obviously living in, but it could be, is it also living on? So the skin, or is it really related to the oral and gut flora and that in the genitals? Yes. So mo most people will include the skin flora in a description of the microbiome, but recognize that the, if you're talking numbers, the overwhelming majority of the bacteria that are alive, that are a component of the microbiome are in the gut tract somewhere. So, you know, yeah. upwards yeah. of 75% or more in the gut. Now, I think for many of our audience, they're probably thinking, no, why the hell has David gone off on this tangent? What, if any relevance, can flora in the gut have to do with osteoarthritis? Can you help to, I guess, expand on a few of the theories or at least some of the evidence as to why it might play a role in osteoarthritis? Sure. So it's, this is a relatively young field. There's been a decent amount of work done over the last decade, but I think it's still in its infancy compared to microbiome work and other diseases perhaps, but there's a, a number of reasons to consider that the microbiome is related to OA. We already know that OA is, characterizes this sort of chronic low level inflammation state. We know that the particular branch of the immune system that seems to be activated in many OA patients is the innate immune system. And of course the innate immune system, one of its major roles is to control infections, viral and bacterial infections and such. And there are a number of specific observations that really do make us think that the microbiome is involved in OA somehow or another. So, for example, there are elevations in blood and in synovial fluids, so the fluid inside of joints, of a protein called lipopolysaccharide. So that's, that is a protein that is a component of the cell wall of certain types of bacteria. And we also have sort of indirect evidence from various parts of the immune system, specific parts of the immune system that are upregulated in OA that have to do with sensing bacterial DNA, for example. So bacterial DNA sensing outside of cells is done by a molecule called TLR9. We know that TLR9 is upregulated in OA, and there's actually a, a genetic mutation in TLR9 that's associated with NeOA in the Chinese population. 
And then intracellular bacterial DNA sensing by another protein has been strongly shown in both human and mouse osteoarthritis to be associated with OA development. And if you knock it out, it's protective and things like that. And of course, the final reason to consider it is that there's been a lot of work on microbiome changes with aging and obesity. And we know these are the two most common risk factors for OA that are sort of non-genetic, right? So I think it makes a lot of sense. And just to pick up a couple of those pieces, so the lipopolysaccharide, that mm. protein that comes from the wall of the bacteria, how does it get from the bacteria in the gut to the joint, for example, or to the, yeah, to the circulation? Yeah, it's a great question. We don't fully understand this. The theory is that in certain states, particularly with aging, particularly with obesity, the um, integrity of the gut membrane is somewhat compromised. So the, the filter is no longer there for many proteins of this size. So that's sometimes called a leaky gut. Uh, you know, we use the fancy term increased gut permeability, but we think that's probably where it gets into serum. And then once it's there, it probably spreads throughout the body. Although, you know, my laboratory's done a little bit of work, as we'll talk later on, I think, about the potential of a, of a local joint microbiome. And I think that's really interesting, too, because that may be another source of this LPS that we haven't yet recognized fully. And presumably that leaky gut and some of the changes that you're describing are not unique to osteoarthritis and are present in a range of other diseases, whether that be diabetes, obesity, or whatever. Is that fair? Yeah, exactly. So many of these diseases that share kind of a common phenotype, right? So these are diseases that tend to happen to older adults or associated with cardiovascular disease and all these other things. So um, I can, I think we can see a common theme emerging amongst diseases associated with this dysbiosis or change in the gut microbiome. So let's get into some of the work you and others have been doing, particularly in the preclinical animal model space. Mm -hmm. And if you could just describe a little bit about the work that both you and others have done in this space. And and again, uh, you touched upon it a minute ago, but if you can sort of introduce that idea of uh, bacteria, bacterial DNA being present actually within the joint. Yeah, sure. So I'll start with the gut microbiome because we actually have a decent amount of data in the gut microbiome. So from a first principle standpoint, we have to recognize that germ-free mice, which exist in certain you know, research institutions that have no microbiome at all, they do have significantly reduced OA severity using our common OA induction technique. And they're not completely protected, but they're to a significant degree protected. So that makes you think that the gut microbiome certainly has something to do uh, in a negative sense with OA, right? Um, there have been a number of animal studies, mouse studies mainly, but also some rat and guinea pig studies showing that um, gut microbiome diversity, it's called alpha diversity, is reduced in OA. Uh, it's also reduced in OA risk factors like aging and obesity. And then there was a study published a number of, of years ago showing that supplementation of a mouse diet with a certain kind of prebiotic fiber improved OA outcomes. And of course, that was associated with altering the gut microbiome. And then we recently, this was just published a few weeks ago, we had a large study where we uh, started looking at, at this from a slightly different angle. There are certain mouse strains, the one that we worked on was called the MRL strain, that for reasons that are not completely clear are protected against developing OA. So we were trying to figure out why that was. 
And long story short, it turns out the gut microbiome plays a fairly significant role in that. So, you know, we can modify the gut microbiome of a regular mouse by transplanting in this healer mouse microbiome and prevent to a significant degree OA development in a regular mouse as well. And then moving on to the microbial DNA uh, story, which is something we just sort of fell into. We started working on this a number of years ago when people uh, were starting to come out with uh, uh, microbiome data from various niches that you would not expect there to be any bacteria, right? So it was about this time when they were discovering that the, the brain has a microbiome and the deep respiratory tract has a microbiome. And we had a bunch of, of cartilage uh, samples sitting around from human patients and, and mice and such. So that's when we, we really dove in to see if we could find traces of bacterial DNA within these samples. And turns out you can. And turns out that they're present in basically all, all the human specimens that we looked at and all the mouse specimens we looked at. But what was really interesting is that we, would, we saw shifts in the patterns of these microbial DNA species as you go from a healthy patient to an OA patient that has relatively mild damage to an OA patient that has pretty severe damage. And the other thing that was really exciting was if you if you look at the cartilage microbiome, which is what I'll call it, um, between uh, mice that are susceptible to OA and mice that don't get OA, you see the same differences. So starting to make us think that they're perhaps pathogenic or, or bad acting, you know, uh, microbes or microbial DNA, and perhaps some that might be associated with better outcomes. And with regards to the bacterial DNA species that you saw, particularly in those that had osteoarthritis, have you found any consistency about either those species, those bad actors that you were mentioning, and in particular, any that you think might be consistent with altered flora in the gut and pathogenic? Yeah, so we have. Our, our lab has gone on to do a variety of other um, microbiome studies. So we recently published a study looking at the gut microbiome as a potential mediator of sex differences in mice. So uh, in the exact opposite pattern of human patients, uh, male mice get worse away than female mice do. And it turns out that at least part of this is due to the gut microbiome. And we saw the same bacterial species there as being associated with worse outcomes that we did in this previous transplant experiment. We've also gone on to do some heritability experiments, seeing if our transplantation lasts in multiple generations of mice and whether the OA protection lasts. And the answer is yes, and the same clades, the bacterial species are showing up there too. And we've also done a little bit of work, we haven't published this yet, we're about to here soon, on different diets for OA, particularly like a high-fat diet or a ketogenic diet. And we're seeing some similarity there too. Now, something that's interesting that I have, I, we've not figured this out yet, to a large extent, the cartilage microbial DNA patterns are similar to what we find in the gut, but there are some striking differences. So there are some specific bacterial species that appear to be better for you in the gut and worse for you in cartilage, and it's unclear why there's a difference there. I think it might have something to do with how your immune system is responding to that bacteria, but, but we've got to figure that out still. And you may be premature in asking this question based upon that little statement there. But you mentioned before about the linkage between osteoarthritis and the innate immune system. Is there any data at this point in time suggesting that the uh, microbial DNA that you're finding is linked in any way to, to alterations in the innate immune system so in the joint? 
Yeah. So now you're getting at the the key thrust of what my lab is going to be working on, hopefully for the next few years. Okay. So the answer is no, we don't have any direct evidence, but we have some really nice indirect evidence. So the the first thing that my laboratory worked on, we've, we published an abstract about this and we're writing the paper now is, uh, it was an interesting study. I didn't expect to find any differences, but we did. So if you take the microbial DNA from a human OA patient and you get rid of all the human DNA, you're just left with the microbial DNA, right? And you amplify it and then you inject that into a germ-free mouse, which doesn't really get OA to begin with, you will then render that mouse susceptible to OA. But if you take microbial DNA from a healthy human individual and inject it, and et cetera, you don't increase the risk of OA in that mouse, right? Uh, and for the longest time, we this was a little bit of a puzzle because we assumed that basically any bacterial DNA was probably inflammatory and bad for you and all this. Well, it turns out that uh, there's been literature published on this, mainly in the pediatric infectious disease space, where they've figured out that certain DNA combinations of DNA sequences are highly inflammatory and others aren't. And they've developed this algorithm to tell you how inflammatory it is. And lo and behold, if you apply that to what we injected, the OA DNA was supposed to be presumably highly inflammatory and the control DNA was not. So now my laboratory is going to be following up on that and see if that really is what's going on. It's a fascinating area, really, truly fascinating. Now, most of what we've been talking about today has obviously been focused on the preclinical animal world. Hmm. And obviously, humans are a different species altogether. Are there any similar findings that you can comment on in the human literature? Yeah, there there have been. Uh, there have been a number of human studies. Of course, human studies are more difficult to do because you have very heterogeneous diets and differences in the microbiome, et cetera. But there have been certain microbial species that have sort of risen to the top as associated with either structural osteoarthritis or OA pain in a number of species. So things like Streptococcus and Clostridia and Bacteroidetes and things like that. And there have been a couple that appear to be associated with improved outcomes. So Bifidobacterium lactobacillus. And among these, interestingly enough, um, some of these were the same things we saw in the mouse data. Lactobacillus in particular seems to be in, improve OA outcomes. So there, there are problems, of course, with the human literature because many of these patients are also obese and also older and teasing that apart is difficult. And then another thing that, that I think is difficult to do in human studies is, as you know, we, we don't have a great definition for what OA is really. I mean, we can certainly recognize an in-stage OA patient, but trying to recognize someone in the very early stages is difficult. So in my opinion, finding a, a truly healthy control for a 65-year-old or you know, pick an age OA patient is somewhat difficult. So I think that's another reason why we perhaps may, may not have seen as many differences in the human literature as we have in the animal literature. And, and just to pick apart that a little bit further, you mentioned um, at the outset with, with aging and with osteoarthritis, we see changes in the diversity of the microbiome. Could you comment on that? And in particular, uh, I guess, theories around alterations in the incidence of osteoarthritis since sort of pre-industrial through the industrial times? Yeah, so that's it's a great question. We've seen this emerge in microbiome literature in 
almost all chronic diseases, that you see a decrease in diversity associated with the disease. And I don't think we really understand why that is. I don't know that we know that it's the underlying disease process that's somehow reshaping the microbiome or if it's the host immune systems that's reshaping it, but it is a consistent finding that we're seeing lower diversity in, in those individuals and in those cases. And I, I should say too that obesity, particularly in mice when you use a high-fat diet, it strongly drops the diversity of the microbiome as well. So many of these roads lead to the same place, I think. And it is a great question about the about the potentiality of the dietary changes that we've made in the 20th century in the in the post-industrial era there's a really fantastic paper um, several years ago now that went back and did skeletal surveys of prehistoric hunter-gatherers and then pre-industrial humans and then post-industrial humans and basically they found that evidence for knee osteoarthritis was stable until the industrial era. And then since then, it's roughly doubled and it keeps on going up. So you have to ask yourself, well, what's, what's changed? You know, certainly our genetic makeup hasn't drifted significantly in that period of time. But the things that have changed, one of the largest ones is, is diet. And of course, the advent of antibiotics and modern medical care. So it really does make you wonder if at least one contributor to this rapid rise is that we're, we're eating these more highly processed foods, less fiber, our gut microbiome is shrinking, and perhaps being enriched in these quote unquote bad microbiome species. Yeah, it's a fascinating area. And obviously, there's a lot to learn. Let's, I guess, extend it a little bit further. You mentioned a couple of terms as we've spoken today, pre probiotic, different diets that may play a role. Can you just explain the terms and a little bit of sort of, I guess, the dietary concept here as well? Yeah, so uh, uh, it's unfortunate that these two terms sound so much alike. So uh, prebiotic is something that you eat that you ingest that is eaten by your gut microbiome and certain bacteria of course like certain things more than other things so prebiotics are generally thought of as these dietary items that will enrich good bacteria and that will allow bad bacteria to diminish in number and probiotic is the sort of blanket term given to taking live bacteria by mouth. And of course, I have to caution whenever we talk about probiotics, there's never really been a great study showing that taking standard probiotics by mouth actually changes the gut microbiome. Almost never have I seen a study where it enriches the microbiome in whatever it is that you're taking in. So, um, you know, I, as much as I'd love to jump on the bandwagon and say there's a certain probiotic that might fix OA, I'm not sure that's the case. Yeah, no, I think it's a, a really important thing to stress because obviously this is a fascinating area, an area of active research interest, but I don't think we're necessarily at a point, Matlock, where we want to encourage people to go out and spend a lot of money on expensive bacteria that we have no evidence to suggest that they actually provide any difference at this point in time. No, certainly not. And you... Uh, to be honest, the mouse studies that my laboratory works on, we are able to reshape the microbiome, but recognize that is when we are doing really high dose inoculation uh, directly into the intestine, right? So it's not something that's easily achievable in a standard outpatient thing that a human might take. And when you say inoculation, you're talking feces, right? So we, we usually use uh, cecal content, actually, as opposed to feces. And the reason that we study cecal, which the cecum is, is a part of the intestine, the reason that we uh, study cecal content is it's the point at the mouse um, digestive system that is the most diverse from a microbiome perspective. 
So we've chosen to focus there. Yeah. Uh, the the two are, are relatively similar, but there's just a little bit more bulk and a little bit more diversity in the sequel bacteria. Yeah, I mean, again, it's a it's a fascinating area, and we've touched a little bit upon, I guess, where you're planning to go in the next few years. But do you mind just making some comments about what you think the next critical steps are to allow the microbiome in osteoarthritis story to evolve? Yeah, so I think uh, you know, of course one of the biggest things we need as a field is uh, we need for the large OA cohorts to start collecting these samples. So we've, we've got a million small studies that have 20 or 30 patients, but we really need these thousand patient cohorts to get us some um, sample collection. And of course, they weren't, they weren't originally designed for that, so I understand why they haven't included it to begin with, but it's, it's a relatively easy thing to collect. In the field more broadly, I think we really do need to figure out the dynamics of how the gut microbiome, uh, certain bacteria, bacterial products get into the bloodstream and then how they're disseminated. We're sort of making indirect links with the published literature, but somebody needs to really figure that out, nail that down. And then the other thing that's similar to our, pro our clinical approach in rheumatology, unfortunately, is it really depends how you... Uh, study the microbiome, so what instrumentation you use and what sequencing approaches you use. The field to date has used a relatively narrow sequencing approach called 16S. I know this is getting kind of in the weeds, but I really think we need to move beyond that and move into sequencing the whole microbiome because there are a number of challenges using 16S profiling where we might be missing some things. And again, this may be premature, but if you were to design a clinical trial and use the knowledge that you currently have in knee osteoarthritis, um, and you're planning to intervene on the microbiome, what would you do? Well, I think uh, it's in a way, it's sort of already being done in some of these dietary intervention studies. So we know that, for example, a Mediterranean diet has a very strong effect on reshaping the gut microbiome. And as we've heard a few weeks ago on your podcast, there's uh, a good evidence that a Mediterranean diet might be beneficial in OA. From a microbiome perspective, of course, I would like to repeat those studies and focus exclusively on collecting gut microbiome samples and see how it changes. The other thing that I think is important in a microbiome space uh, is that it's probably going to be, for us to, to affect OA outcomes with the microbiome, we probably need to catch OA patients earlier. And I don't yet have an answer as to how to do that. But many of the dietary studies that have been done so far have really focused on you know middle stage, late stage OA patients. I think we really need to capture those folks that have early knee pain if we're going to make a difference with the microbiome. And do you think, you know, given the heterogeneity of osteoarthritis and the variability in the patient population, do you think there's a rationale for trying to identify a phenotype that may have greater, greater levels of systemic inflammation, metabolic changes through measuring lipopolysaccharide or, or another marker for screening and eligibility? Yeah, I think we might be able to go beyond that. I might, I think we might be able to identify, if we had the, the data sets to look at, I think we might be able to identify certain um, uh, microbiome phenotypes um, beyond just, just LPS that might uh, indicate a more inflammatory uh, reaction or something like that. You know, I, I think we could, we could get there. We already kind of have hints that this exists, right? Because there's a lot of data, great data coming out primarily from uh, UNC 
showing that the microbiome in obese OA is different than sort of the standard microbiome, and that may play a role specifically in inflammation. So I think the answer is absolutely yes. Fantastic. Well, this will be a conversation I hope to continue to evolve with you, and I might drag you into something else um, no, if, if, if that's okay. Matlock, are there any resources that you'd like to point people towards or any additional information uh, that you think we should have covered that we didn't? Well, you had mentioned it in the podcast a few weeks ago on the Mediterranean diet and different dietary changes. So I think it's important for OA patients to recognize that these other interventions beyond physical therapy and medications really can make a difference. So I think focusing the OA community on dietary changes, not the kind of quacky dietary changes, um, but some of these that have real evidence behind them is going to be important not only to treat OA patients, but also to affect the microbiome, which is probably how they're working in the first place. Wonderful. Um, now, just moving on to a few closing questions and in an effort for me to learn a little bit more from you, but if you could do anything to improve health and healthcare, what would you do? Well, I trained as a I trained as a clinician. I'm still a practicing clinician, so my my answers here will probably be related to clinical practice. So I'm going to cheat, and I'm going to have two instead of just one. <laughs> uh, the first thing is I would ban highly processed and sweetened foods. Um, I think this is the bane of our modern existence. Now we're making the, the cardiovascular surgeons a lot of money, but uh, you know, I think for the general health of the population, that would be, that would be really beneficial. Yeah. yeah. And uh, the second thing, at least in the U S that would really push our clinical research further um, is we've got to, we've got to nail down uh, an integrated medical record system. We've got to move um, our country towards the, the goal of having an easily accessible medical record on every individual that we can mine for potential future use, right? And there are many countries that already have this in place, and that, of course, is where we uh, where we see all this great data in OA about these hundreds of thousands of patients and such because they're able to mine their data sets, and we just can't do that in the U.S. Yeah, another great aspiration. Um, why do you do what you do? What's your primary motivation? Um. It's very gratifying in, uh, in clinic to be able to see patients improve. We don't have great therapies for OA, but we do have some. And uh, some of our rheumatologic interventions do work on the more inflammatory subtypes of OA. So it's really nice to be able to see patients improve in front of you and, and for them to say, hey, you've made a real difference in my life, right? Yeah, I mean, it is in immensely rewarding. And, uh, you know, I think we, we thrive on the opportunity to provide that care and uh, I think also really benefit from the, the feedback we're given when a patient redeems that improvement. And just in closing, is there any one piece of advice, knowledge or wisdom that you'd like to impart for people that have osteoarthritis? Yeah, this, is, this has been said before, but just to reiterate it, um, this is not a silver bullet kind of disease. There's never going to be one single thing we can do to fix this. It really does take an integrated approach. So, you know, if, if a patient is willing to make dietary changes to physical therapy and to change the way that they sort of think about the disease, it can make a real difference. And then it's only after we've done those things that medications may be, may be able to help. And of course, the other thing that I would reiterate with OA patients is see somebody who specializes in OA, right? So um, I, I love family physicians and uh, general internists, for example, but they, they have lots of other things on their plate. So it really would behoove you if you have OA to go see somebody that focuses on OA. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I really just to emphasize 
that healthy lifestyle and behavioral choices make an immense difference here. And, you know, the, the medications that we continue to prescribe are a, a mild panacea, but they're never going to be the answer. Matlock, thank you so much for sharing those wonderful insights, the, the amazing work that you're doing in such a creative and thoughtful space and really hope you continue to make the massive differences that you are. But again, thank you so much for spending a little bit of time with us sharing those insights. No, thanks so much for having me. Looking forward to many great future episodes in the Joint Action Podcast. Thank you, Matlock. So again, fascinating and complex area, one that's rapidly evolving. And you know, obviously, I had the privilege of chatting to Matlock today, and I'm hoping you found that as similarly interesting as I did, particularly you know, about the massive role that the microbiome could be playing in the disease. You know, the fact that we find DNA and bacteria fragments in the joint and the potential that they may play a role in inflammation in the joint is incredibly appealing. And obviously, the links that this has with obesity, aging, and potentially having a leaky gut contributing to the systemic inflammation in the context of osteoarthritis that might drive osteoarthritis is a fascinating area and one that's ripe for intervention. I'm not suggesting for anybody to go out and start buying lactobacillus or anything like that, but it's an area that we need to do trials in. And, you know, again, fascinated today about that conversation about the changes that have happened in the 20th century to our gut bacteria uh, since the industrial age. And, you know, the impact that antibiotic use or highly processed and industrial processed pr produced foods may have had on the changes in the gut flora are really, really important and potentially play a role in why we're seeing so much osteoarthritis now. So again, thank you so much for your support. I'm hoping you found today's conversation interesting and really looking forward to having the opportunity to speak with you again in the not too distant future. But between now and then, please do take care of yourselves. Thanks for listening to Joint Action with David Hunter. If you like our show and want to know more, visit www.jointaction.info. If you have any questions, you can email us at hello at jointaction.info and follow us on Twitter at jointactionorg. This podcast was hosted by David Hunter, edited by Vicky Duong, music produced by Jordan Hunter. The information posted on this podcast is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent disease. Anyone seeking medical advice should consult a health professional. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.